testing. I'm new at this, so thank you for that. This past year, more than a year, I guess it's been 18 months, uh, my mother passed away. My mother was very dear to me. I was the youngest of four, so you can imagine a different kind of relationship. Uh, When she passed, it was a difficult period in my life, as you can imagine. I needed to be encouraged. My wife was the primary encouragement. My sisters and I get together once a month uh, since my mother's passing, and they feel badly for my wife because she has such a load to carry in me. I've been encouraged by your pastor. He was one of the first calls that I made. He was one of the first people that I talked with after that time of sadness. He was there for the funeral with me as I spoke. He stood beside me. My wife, your pastor, people have encouraged me throughout this 18 months. Even prior to that 18th month, 18 months, I could point to people who have been encouragements in my life. The problem with that is that they aren't always there for me. And I don't mean they aren't willing to step up. That's not what I mean. But there are those times where you are alone and something sparks a memory or something prompts a thought and you think, wow. I'm going to be sad here for just a minute. <laughs> My wife and I laugh about the tomato. Uh, we, I, I used to plant tomatoes for my mother on Mother's Day. And when she passed, the day after, I went to her house and cleaned up her garden. And there was one red tomato that was left. I brought that red tomato home and set it on the counter at our house. And went about my business until one day I walked by and I saw that tomato And, of course, that created this flood of unexpected memories of her. My wife was not there. Eric was not there. I was alone. And it is in those moments that we need the encouragement. I think about the biblical example of David. David, the mighty warrior, the mighty leader, the great king that he was. Uh, He came upon the Amalekites who had come before him. And they had wiped out his village. They had burned it. They had torn it to pieces. They had captured the men. I'm sorry, they had captured the women and the children. And David was there alone with his men. Overwhelmed by the grief and the sadness that was there as a result of that event with the Amalekites. And there's a great verse in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 7. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That's what I want. That's what I want. I want to be able to, in those moments when feeling overwhelmed, I am strengthened by the Lord, and I don't need to worry about somebody else. I can do it as a result of what God is able to do. That is not to diminish the people in my life. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I'm trying to prepare myself and prepare us for the times when we don't have people alongside of us, when we need to operate on our own. So how do we do that? Well, I think the kind of the plan for handling that is found in Psalm 13, in Psalm 13. 
How do we do it? How do we find encouragement? How do we find strength in the Lord so that when no one else is available, we can find encouragement? I think Psalm 13 does that for us. Uh, Psalm 13 is the soul's journey from self to God. John Calvin, Psalm 13 was his favorite psalm because in times of trials, he would go to to Psalm 13 to read and reflect on what it is that God can do in bringing encouragement to us. One writer said that Psalm 13 is taking us from desolation to delight. So this morning, what I would like for us to do is I would like for us to try to understand three steps to encouragement. Three steps to encouragement. So uh, the plan is, uh, it's a how-to so that when we see the tomato, we'll be able to handle the emotions that come as a result of those things. The first step to encouragement is to understand the reality of the predicament. We're frustrated. We're suffering. There is a reality in that. Uh, David, in Psalm 13, is mourning. He is desolate. He's feeling forsaken. He is feeling forgotten. And he questions God. Uh, Look in your Bibles at Psalm 13, verse 1. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long is asked four times in two verses. Four times, twice to God, once to himself, and once of his enemies. Can we pause here for just a minute? Please notice that the starting point and the ending point are the same. The starting point, verse 1, is with God. It is always best to think and speak to God first. When those feelings of frustration, those feelings of suffering and desolation begin to overwhelm us, the first step is to go to God and speak to him. That's the best step. That's our starting point. It will also be our ending point. We'll see that in just a few minutes. But he is the starting point. Now, how long, O oh Lord, how long will you forget me forever? How long? Well, and sometimes the Lord says, you know, you're going to wait three days after your brother has died, Mary and Martha, and I'm going to bring Lazarus back to life. Uh, how long, Abraham, Will you have to wait for Isaac? 25 years. 25 years. How long, O Lord, will I have to to wait? How about Joseph, who was thrown into prison and had a plan to get himself out because he had interpreted the dream. And he said, don't forget me. 13 years later, oops, I remember Joseph in prison. Or what about Moses for 80 years waited for the Lord to deliver Israel from Egypt. How long? Uh, We are on God's schedule, not ours. And God's schedule is going to bring us to where he wants us to be at the end. Uh, The suffering, the trial, the desolation that we experience, there is a timetable for that. How long? I don't know. And it is easy to say, but more difficult to do, and that is to wait Wait. We, we bristle when we have to wait in a grocery line. You know, why don't they open another lane? 
Why does that person in the express line, when he has 22 items, I've counted them. They're only supposed to have 15. He's got 22. He should be moved so I can get to my spot. Or we click on for Amazon, and Amazon says, it's going to be December 26th. Oh, man, I need this on the 24th. Get it to me. We're not used to waiting, are we? But the Lord says, through his psalmist, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? In the waiting, you begin to feel like David, don't you? How long will you forget me? Because I'm still doing the same thing. The same feelings are overwhelming me. God must have forgotten me. He must not realize what is happening. Keep in mind that feeling it doesn't make it true. Just because we feel like God has forgotten it, that doesn't make it true. Alistair Begg in preaching Psalm 13, he says, God's love is like the sun, a constant. It may be hidden by the clouds, but it's still there. So even though we're going through these trials and tribulations, even though we're experiencing this and we say, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? We may feel that way, but it's not true. He does not forget us. Isaiah reminds us of that in Isaiah 49. In Isaiah 49, verse 15, he says, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she would have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Isaiah reminds us that God has us right here. And as much as we may think that he has forgotten, you can think that and feel that, but it is not true. It is something that is in our hearts, but is not something that is real. David writes, O Lord, will you forget me forever? In spite of what you feel, God is there. Uh, The response is not denying his existence. That's not how we respond to the difficulties. The response is celebrating his existence. And we don't celebrate his non-interference. We don't celebrate his acting with indifference. That's not the case. That's not what's happening. Remember, God has this, this plan, this idea, this deliberate purpose for you and sometimes it involves these periods where you feel like you're left by yourself and the reality of that then brings us to this point where we say well he's forgotten about me it is not possible for him to have forgotten you so in those moments try to cling to the reality of what is happening the thing that's puzzling about this kind of rant by David is that he is the one that wrote the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want David is the one that wrote the words, you know, that, that, that when I am in the shadow of the Almighty, I will abide with him. So what that reminds me of is that even David experiences these times where we lose perspective on what it is that God has for us. And David has done that. Sometimes our sufferings and our failures include a double blow. Notice what he says. He says he is isolated from human relationships, and and that's crushing. But also he feels isolated from God, which is much, much worse. So he feels this double impact of, of my friends seem to be off somewhere else and have forgotten me. And God, you seem to be off somewhere else. You have forgotten me. And there is this sense in David that, that life is just too much right now. Can we pause And remember Hebrews, 
In Hebrews 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Remember, it was Jesus on the cross. No human relationships. They were mocking him. It was Jesus on the cross who said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The realities of our failures and our sufferings weigh heavily on us. It is a reality that Jesus experienced. Uh, The Lord lets the trial go on until it comes to a height. Uh, Look what happens in verse 1. He says, how long will you hide your face from me? Uh, How long will you withhold this practical help? There's no real state of consciousness that God is doing something. David has set that aside and allowed whatever is happening in this situation to overwhelm him. And then he says in verse 2, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? The turmoil of thought rather than the dull ache of dejection begins to fill him. He says, uh, How long am I going to do this? This idea here, he's saying, Take counsel in my soul. Uh, It's about ruminating. How long will I be ruminating in the trouble and the, the bitter and the sour and the, the work that I really don't want to be a part of? How long am I going to replay this in my mind? Think about that. When, when we are left to ourselves, what begins to happen? He says, he take counsel in my soul. I begin to look inside and I begin to say, what could I have done differently? How could I have made this better? I will tell you that when my mom passed, Uh, She passed in her sleep at night. We got the call. We got there about 1 o'clock in the morning. So she had passed by herself at night. So what's running through my head over and over? I should have been there. Why wasn't I there? I didn't have to leave so soon. I could have spent the night. Why didn't I stay? There was a bed open over there. I could have done that. Maybe I didn't ask the right question of the doctor. If I would have been there sooner and been more aggressive with the doctor, maybe that would have changed things. Take counsel in my soul. See what happens? You stay awake at night. You lie in the bed, and you're ruminating on that, and you're thinking, I, 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 I could have done. And David says, how long am I going to do this, Lord? Uh, remember, Job, initially, he took every, all of this succession of catastrophic events, he took them in stride, but then they got to be too much for him, and da- uh, Job said this, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? <laughs> it becomes overwhelming when we begin to become so self-absorbed with ourselves. And what we could have done or what we should do. Instead of understanding what David will conclude at the end of the chapter. He says in verse 2, he says, I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day. And then he says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? This is a personal humiliation for David, whatever it is. Charles Spurgeon in his um, Psalms says, no way is this true. But then other writers say that it was the occasion when Absalom was humiliating David. Remember, he was going around and trying to overthrow David and become king. And, and so whatever the situation is, there are enemies that are piling on top and trying to make David's life worse. Uh, these sorrows, he says, he says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Uh, we are going to have enemies. When we find ourselves in situations, there will be those that say, oh, I thought you believed in God. Where is your God now? What's going on? You don't seem to be yourself anymore. Has your God walked away from you? Has he forgotten you? There are enemies. Plus, there are those those enemies of of doubt, fear, those enemies also, besides the real enemies. 
And then he says, do you ever get the feeling that the joy is slow? He says, have sorrow in my heart all the day long. Where's the joy? There is none. It's all about being sorrowful. Uh, Someone has said this, evil comes on horseback but goes away on foot. (laughs) And that's what David is experiencing. My enemy be exalted over me. His enemy's ascendancy would be uh, dismaying at more than one occasion. And if it were his own son, it would be heartbreaking and heartrending. And plus, you you know how it is. There's this thing I I learned. It's called Freudenschad. Have you heard of this? Freudenschad is the, the German word that means harm joy. It's used to mean pleasure taken at the misfortune of someone else. David's enemies are loving this. It's kind of like, you know, Freudenschad is like when Ohio State fans love when Michigan loses. Or, or University of Kentucky fans love that Louisville is 2-17. and 17. They also love the fact that they lost to Bellarmine and Lipscomb. And they were bulldozed by Kentucky, rejoicing over your enemy. We love that. That's happening to David. His enemies are loving what's going on. The reality of the predicament is frustration and suffering. That's what David is going through. The second step to finding encouragement is found in verses 3 and 4. In verses 3 and 4, we have the remedy of the predicament. He cries out to God. He's fixed on God. It's his prayer to God. Notice what it says in verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. This is the access point, isn't it? It's where he's beginning to spin, and he's going to go one way or the other. He's either going to spin back in towards dependence upon God, or he's going to spin out of control, where he's going to be just kind of in this, how long, how long, how long, God, you have forgotten me kind of a mode. And notice what happens is, in verses 3 and 4, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Notice what's happening is, it is not rejoicing or encouragement that he is experiencing. What he is experiencing is dependence upon God. So as a result of this great frustration and this great suffering, he then finds himself saying, I need you, Lord. I need to consider and have you consider me. I need you to help me. Uh, That's what prayer is, isn't it? Just acknowledging that God is in control. He said, oh, Lord, my God. Oh, Lord, my God. Uh, The interest that God has in us is not destroyed by trials and sorrows. The interest that God has in us is eternal and never changing. He is there for us. There is this something that drives us to God. And here, David exemplifies that. The sorrow and frustration has driven him to God. That's not always the case. Eric mentioned I, I spend my, my days at, at school, and it is sobering and sad to hear students talk about walking away from God or turning their backs on God or moving away from God because of what has happened. And what happens normally is there is something tragic in their life that they aren't able to reconcile. It may be something like a divorce in their family. It may be something like a grandparent dying sooner than they thought they should die. 
Or it might be something like someone in a church, we went and visited, and someone treated us badly in the church. But instead of driving them to depend upon God, it drives them away from God. And the interesting thing, and and I I realize I'm dealing with just a small sample size, but the interesting thing to me is it's rarely because of what God has done. It's always because of what someone else has done. And they want to blame God for it. When if they would settle in and think how God loves and cares and works in our lives, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And that's what happens with David. He spins in the right direction. He directs his cry to God. And it's important to cry. Don't stuff it. Cry out to God. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Consider and answer me. That's what he says. And, and there are two poles here. David has an awareness of God and an awareness of his enemy. Now, the, the reason why these two poles are so important is he needs them to be together in order for him to do what he needs to do. David's positive that God is there and is going to do something. David is negative in that his enemies are there and they're going to do something. So these two things, the negative and the positive, together will work for his good. Now, one without the other is bad because if he just has the positive where he just says, oh, God is in control, he could become complacent, right? Just not do anything. Just yeah, whatever. Or the other, he could dwell on the negative and say, oh, my enemies, they're beating me down. It's terrible. And, and spiral down that way. But instead, he brings them together. And together, he leads him to say, God, consider and answer me. And part of God's consideration and answer. Now, those aren't two separate words. It's a Hebrew device where they repeat the same word. Uh, the in, translators just used it differently. But it's a Hebrew way of just emphasizing the importance of this consider and answer me. And then he says this. He says, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Light up my eyes. Now, this isn't about a physical restoration. It's not like David is blind, needs to have light to see. Instead, it's allowing his eyes, his healthy soul, to become enlightened so that he can see God's words and see God's way and see God work. Illumine him. When I was a small boy, my mom would take us to my aunt's or my grandmother's in Kentucky, which would often lead to my aunt's house. My aunt and her sister lived on the other side of the railroad tracks, and it was a dark, desolate place at night. And my aunt, her name was uh, Elizabeth, but we called her Aunt Lizzie, uh, she probably weighed 65 pounds, maybe. And she was about 4'11", pencil thin. And at night... You know, I'm nine or ten years old. I hear sounds. I'm frightened by the sounds. She would come walking down the hall with a flashlight in her hand. And I would say, where are you going? And she says, I'm going outside to see what's going on. (laughs) I'm not going. I'm not going. And my grandmother, who lived there as well, the two of us would cower in the corner while my Aunt Lizzie would go out with this flashlight, and she would be all over the back looking for things. And what would happen as a result of that? we would find out there's nothing to be afraid of because she illumined the area. She illumined and found out there's nothing to be worried about. And that's what David is saying. Light up my eyes so I can see God's words, so I can see God's ways, so I can see God working. I need to see what's going on. Light up my eyes so they are wide open to the realities of what it is that you have marked out for me. Father, please consider me and light up my eyes. It's the same sentiment that the Apostle Paul had In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, 
remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your understanding enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. We want to know what's going on. We want to see it. Illumine my eyes so that I can understand the reality of what God is capable of and who he is. 1833 was a difficult year in England. 1834, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was born, but it was also a difficult year. They had four different prime ministers in one year. They were fighting over slavery and the Fugitive Slave Act, and so it was a tumultuous time, a difficult time for citizens and pastors. And out of that tumultuous time, Edward Mote, a pastor, wrote these words, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. God, light up my eyes so I can see that my hope is built on you and the reality of who you are and what you are able to do. The remedy for his predicament is prayer. Verse 4, lest, he says in verse 4, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Prayer has taken a bad rap over the last four years, five years. There are people that that speak disparagingly when you say, I'm praying for you. They say, "I I don't want your prayers. Do something else besides prayer. Now, there's two, two reasons why that, that happens, in my opinion. One reason is people have forgotten that we are praying and talking to an amazing God. And so because we are speaking to an amazing God, they think we're just offering up some you know, sweet solitude. That's not what we're doing. We're talking to God. The other reason why I think there is a problem is we think we're amazing and we can fix everything. And so people don't pray or they don't accept prayers. Prayer is a difficult thing to do. And people say, well, I don't have time to do it. I I don't know how to do it. Well, think about this prayer right here. It's two verses. It's concise. It's pointed. Think about how many prayers in the Bible were, were like this. Very pointed prayers. Remember Peter walks out onto the water? What happened? Fell into the water. And then what did he do? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Lord, save me. Short prayer. Why? Because that's what he needed, the urgency of the moment. He needed a a short prayer, concise to God. When you are experiencing the things that you're experiencing, you don't need to try to impress God. You don't need to try to wear him down to your side of thinking. Think about the the, the publican. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Think about uh, the leper. Lord, if you will, I'll be made clean. Or what, what about the woman with the issue of blood? What did she say in order to be healed? Nothing. She said nothing. Instead, she reached for Jesus. This morning, as you feel this sense of, of what is happening, what is overwhelming, what is frustrating, as the, 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 the suffering has this giant wave that you're, you're feeling catching you, Lord, save me. Lord, I'm yours. If you will. Simplicity and the brevity. 
drives us to help us and ask the question, do you know him this morning? Maybe the reason why you're experiencing the frustrations and the sufferings is because you don't know him. You don't know Jesus, who can take you into the presence of God, who can transform your life and bring about the things that God wants in you. Maybe you don't know him this morning. Come to him and know him and meet him. The reality of the predicament, frustration and suffering, that's step one. Step two, as we make our way towards encouragement, is we find that the remedy of the predicament is crying out to God. We're, we're, we're fixed on God. We, we pray to him. And please notice the, the, the third step. The relief from the predicament is found in verses 5 and 6. We, we begin to focus. There is a certainty. Spurgeon said of these two verses, The rain is over and gone, and time of the singing birds is come. Verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Mourning in verses 1 and 2. Desperate. How long? And now he finds relief. David did not succumb to his enemies. He did not succumb to his feelings. But instead he submits to his father. He submits to the steadfast love of God. Everything is the same. Nothing has changed. The only thing that has changed is the reality in David's heart and mind that God is here and God is going to take care of him. That's all that's changed. His enemies are still barking at his heels. He is still having these feelings. But then God comes in and says, you know what? This act of emotion has led to an act of your will. Verse 5, but I have trusted. Verse 6, I will sing. You see what's going on here? It's no longer the emotion that, how long, how long? Instead, it's, I'm trusting. I'm rejoicing. Because he is comprehending what it is that God has done and will do. He trusted. He trusted. Verse 5, it also says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. Your steadfast, constant love. Loyalty. Love, mercy, loving kindness, all of those words have been used to translate steadfast love. Uh, Steadfast love is a pledged love. It's about the covenant. It is about the covenant of God between us. There is a covenant. It's the covenant of love, right? God says, I love you. And I say, I love you. And I want to be in a relationship with you. Uh, your pastor, we were teammates for three years playing basketball together, and uh, he was uh, older than I am. He's a year older than I am, so he was a sophomore when I was a freshman. And when he talks about we're brothers, he's definitely the big brother. He does a great job, and I, I mean that as a compliment. He's the big brother. I came to Cedarville, and I went to a very small Christian school. I rode in our coach's K car to basketball games. Do you remember the K car? You could sit three people in the back, one person in the front, the coach, and then whoever was going to be added the next in the starting lineup, he rode in a van somewhere. But that, so I rode in a car to games. I get to Cedarville, and Eric says, hey, we're going to ride a bus, a Greyhound bus. Well, I went crazy. Eric always tried to keep me calm because everything was just the greatest thing for me. Like, for example, he used to take my pulse in the locker room before games. His would be like eight Mine would be 150, you know. I just wasn't, he was the old pro. He was veteran, very confident, very assured, and so he kind of was helping me along. So anyways, so we're going to ride this bus. 
He says, Bake, we need to agree on something. I said, what's that? And he says, you are not going to lose your mind when you get on that bus. He says, you're going to be calm and you're going to be collected and you're going to just, just be cool. It's just a bus. And he says, it's not the only bus we're ever going to ride on. We'll ride on another bus. Well, you know, I'm trying to keep it in. But it's a bus. It's huge. The only time I had been on a Greyhound bus was my, with my uncle and he made me sit inside all by myself and not say a word for the eight-hour trip. So I'm thinking, big bus. There's only 12 of us. This is going to be amazing. So I get on the bus, and I'm trying to be just as cool as I can be. You know? But inside, I'm like exploding. And I, I, I see Eric. He's sitting in a seat, and he kind of points to the seat behind him because we can't sit together. There are too many seats. You're not going to sit with each other. So he kind of points to the back seat. So I sit behind him, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, I wonder how I'm doing. I wonder if he's happy with this. You know? So I reach up, and I grab his seat, and pull myself up while I rip the seat back. Like it ripped back, and Eric's like this. And I go, how am I doing? He goes, he just looks at me, gives me this goofy look, you know, because I was acting a fool. Just relax, it's okay. We had reached an agreement that I was going to act a certain way, and I failed horribly. But that didn't mean anything, because then once we got off the bus, once we got onto the floor, once we got back to the room, that was all forgotten. He didn't care. We're roommates. We're teammates. We're friends. We're in an agreement with each other. We're bound to each other. That's what the steadfast love of God is. We can act a fool. We can be crazy. We can lose perspective. And you know what God says? I love you. I love you. Come here. Come here. Uh, I am going to ask you to trust in my steadfast love because I'm not going anywhere. I care about you. You can be as nervous and as anxious as you want to be, but remember me. I'm here for you. I'm going to take care of you. That's what the steadfast love of God is. He was depressed and feeling abandoned, but now look what's happening to him. Look at verse 6. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He will sing to the Lord. Now, here's, here's the, the, the thing that's happening here. There was great sorrow, great joy. That's tough. That's tough. Sometimes I'd rather just have the great joy, wouldn't you? But we have to go through that great suffering in order to experience the greater joy. And that's what has happened to David. He says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Remember Paul and Barnabas? Paul and Barnabas are arrested, thrown into prison. They're in the stocks. They're in the bonds. They're all tied up. They're uh, set aside in this place where they aren't uh, seeing any daylight at all. And what were they doing? Singing, singing. Singing praises to God. Singing. That's what he says here. He says, the Lord has dealt bountifully for me. Gypsy Smith, a famous evangelist in the 19th century, he said this of this song. He says, men sing it, boys whistle it, and women rock their babies to sleep to it. And that song is, when upon life billows, you are tempest-tossed. When you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. There is a completeness here. Uh, He has granted all of my desires is what some other uh, texts translate this. He has given me all my desires. What happened to verses 1 and 2? How long? How long? How long? Well, what has happened is he went to God in prayer and God reminded him of who he is and what he's able to do. And David reaches the conclusion, you have dealt bountifully with me. It is a marvelous thing 
for God to remind us of what he has done for us. We sometimes forget. Sometimes we, we, we are caught up in a sameness. And so we forget to do what the psalm writer The songwriter says, you know, count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. And we will conclude that God has dealt bountifully with me. In a time of trouble, the Lord with one scripture changes David. With one kind of understanding, David is changed. We don't pray for greater comfort we pray for greater understanding of who God is, and that brings comfort to us. David is teaching us that there is a path to encouragement. And this morning, our path to encouragement is found in Psalm 13. In Psalm 13. Joseph Scrivens was born in Ireland. He attended Trinity College and became a pastor. During his time in seminary, he fell in love with a girl from his hometown who two years later, they were betrothed to be married. And as she was riding with him, he raced ahead across the bridge. When she got to the bridge, the horse threw her and she drowned in the river. Scrivener experienced a sadness because of that, obviously. And then after waiting several years, he met and married Eliza Roche. Eliza Roche fell desperately ill. And died three years later. And then Scrivener, when he himself, overwhelmed by the grief of his mother and the loss of these ones so close to him, was sitting in his bed, being attended to by a friend. And a friend said, what is this? And the friend lifted up a a, a sheath of paper. And Joseph said, oh, that's a poem that I wrote for my mother. And as his friend looked at the the words of the poem, he said, this applies to you now. And he began to read to him, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. This morning, I am hopeful you know him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you can take us through Scripture with a living example of someone who is experiencing things that we experience. Heartache and sadness that is real to us, real in our lives, we can then see his example and we can use that to remind us who you are and what you're capable of. Father, please allow us to reach the conclusion that I have trusted that I will sing because you have dealt bountifully with me. In Jesus' name, amen.